This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, we bring back a class from 2010, U.S. foreign policy of containment between 1946 and 1950, taught by William Hitchcock of the University of Virginia. All right, so we have a lot to cover today. This is a, a very substantial lecture, so um, it's not the first time you've heard some of this, and it's not the last time, so don't fret if you feel that it's going too rapidly, but I have to cover a lot of ground. And the topic that we're dealing with today in this lecture is the American strategy for consolidating their foreign policy with respect to the Soviet Union in that critical period, 1946 to 1949 or 1950. Um, if you need a two-word sort of title, what we're dealing with is the consolidation of control um, and the implementation of a policy that will increasingly be termed containment. So the advent of the policy of containment in this critical three to four year period is what we've got to deal with today. Uh, you guys will remember that we left off last time talking about Potsdam, the Potsdam Conference of July 1945. What did the great powers agree to there? You will remember the basics. The great powers, the, the four occupying powers of Germany agreed that they would, uh, they would, there would be four occupying powers. They would all have a zone of occupation but they would work cooperatively in Germany to, to, to govern Germany as a single unit. Just, just remember that. They're gonna, they, they, uh, there's four zones of occupation in Germany, but those four states are going to work cooperatively to keep Germany not partitioned, but together as a single political unit. Do you see any tensions there? Any pitfalls? Of course, obviously. Very difficult task. They would work together to dismantle German military power. They agreed. They would break up the large industrial cartels. They would denazify German society. They would re-educate German citizens. And they would do this on the basis of shared governance in Germany. Those were the principles at Potsdam. And we've seen that there were very serious difficulties right from the start in implementing the agreements made at Potsdam. So you see in the records that by ni early 1946, beginning of 1946, American military officials and uh, administrators in occupied Germany writing back to Washington, very frustrated, bitterly complaining about the, the, the behavior of the Soviet Union, uh, Soviet representatives in Germany. The Russians, it appeared, were not going to treat Germany as a single, uh, a single nation and work cooperatively with the Western states. Uh, in the eyes of these American administrators, they seem to be acting unilaterally in Germany, especially in the area of reparations and dismantling of German economic assets. The Americans saw the Russian behavior as predatory. I think that's a good word to describe their attitude, or at least the way the, the Americans saw Russian behavior as predatory, as dealing with Germany as if it was conquered territory to be extracted and brought home. The Soviets, they felt, were clearly going to operate in occupied Germany in, 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 in only in their own national interests and not in the cooperative interests of the four occupying powers, as they had said they would at Potsdam. That was an American perception. Was it the reality? Well, this is the great question. But that was the perception at work here. Now, it wasn't just in Germany that trouble was brewing, according to American officials. Germany was was the main focus of these tensions early on, but it wasn't just there. American officials believed they saw a pattern emerging elsewhere. And just very, very quickly, they, they felt that there was, 
Soviet uh, machinations in Austria, where there were also a joint occupying force there. The Russians were maintaining very large military forces in Austria. They felt, as the Americans looked at the map of Europe, that in Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, that the Russians were also beefing up local Communist Party activists and making life very difficult for non-communist political activity to occur, as they were supposed to have done. In Greece, a civil war had broken out that would pitted communists against royalists, and the Washington felt that surely the Soviets were helping um, the communists there. And in the Near East, in Turkey and in Iran, there was tension and trouble and difficulty there as well. The Soviets seemed to be seeking greater influence in that part of the world, in the, the Near East and in the Eastern Mediterranean, where the British had once been so influential, but their power was shrinking, and the United States feared the Soviets would seek to fill what they perceived as a power gap or vacuum. Okay? So what were the Russians up to? What were they doing? Was there a plan? Was there a blueprint? Were they following a very carefully thought out scheme? It depended in 1946 on who you asked. But it was George Kennan's long telegram of February 1946, which you have been reading and will read, continu continually read and reread as you write your short essays on it, that seemed to offer an explanation at a time when American policy was looking for an explanation of Soviet behavior. It was written while Kennan, as you know, was second in command of the embassy in Moscow. Um, it was uh, at a time when American official policy was still to cooperate with the Soviets. And the telegram made the argument that the Soviet Union was fundamentally not a normal state with normal ambitions that it was abnormal. Kennan said the Soviet leaders were driven by, and this I love this phrase, a neurotic view of world affairs. You've seen that in the long telegram, a neurotic view of world affairs. It's a very powerful characterization. Soviet leaders, he said, were paranoid. They feared contact with the outside world. They feared foreign influence and interference in Soviet affairs. And they considered the outside world, Kennan's words, evil, hostile, and menacing. That's pretty powerful stuff, evil. Soviet leaders, Kennan said, conducted their work, and this is a great, a great turn of phrase, in an atmosphere of oriental secretiveness and conspiracy. Your Kennan, say what you will about his analysis, and many people thought it was uh, over, over, overblown, was an extraordinarily gifted writer. And I think one of the reasons for the success of the long telegram was its powerfully argued and articulated um, argument. Even so, Kennan said, although they're anxious and worried and they hate the outside world and they think everyone else is evil, even so, they're going to go on the offensive. They're not going to withdraw behind a, 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 a screen, a curtain, and just, um, and just restrain themselves. No, they're going to seek to address their security needs by, not by pulling back, but by strengthening their prestige, strengthening their power, and, and the reach of the Soviet Union. How would they do this? They would be opportunistic. They were going to look for points of weakness in the American and Western configuration of power. They were going to look for the ripe fruit that was hanging that might just fall into their laps. They were going to pick off the little weaklings of the pack. That was uh, some of the, uh, the idea here. 
They would use secret organizations and political fronts inside foreign countries to undermine political legitimacy of elected governments. They were going to exploit anti-colonial sentiment in the empires of Britain and France around the world. And above all, they were going to impose an autarkic economic uh, closed system over that area, that territory that they controlled. Autarkic or closed economic system. This is a very important fear in the minds of many of the American leaders, that if the Soviet um, control should expand, they would close off that territory to the interpenetration of free trade, the exchange of goods and people uh, and ideas across those boundaries. So the Soviets wanted a closed system, and that would deny the West access to resources and to people and to, um, to political space. So in general, Kennan declared, and this is some of his final flourishes, and they're just worth repeating, although I know you've been reading them carefully, all Soviet efforts on the unofficial international plane will be negative and destructive. This is only in line, he says, with the basic Soviet instinct that there can be no compromise with rival power and that constructive work can start only when communist power is dominant, he says. In summary, and here's the payoff, he concludes, we have here a political force committed fanatically to the belief that with the U.S. there can be no permanent modus vivendi, and that Soviet leadership will be content only when our traditional way of life is destroyed. It's very stark. It's very black and white. And we've debated and will continue to debate whether Kennan's analysis was accurate. Maybe he was wrong. Many scholars have suggested that he overstated the case or that he was read incorrectly. That's what Kennan would later claim. Was it far too harsh a critique? Was it dismissive of evidence that there might have been opportunities for cooperation? We'll continue to dis discuss that uh, in, the, in the next few weeks. But the point is that because of the difficulties that I've described in Germany and in the Near East and elsewhere in Europe, American leaders wanted Kennan's analysis to be accurate. They believed it. They accepted it. They felt that it crystallized the international geopolitical situation very well and that it explained Soviet behavior. That's the critical point. American leaders and Truman and his senior cabinet members felt that this way of thinking about Soviet behavior made sense, that it squared up with what they were seeing elsewhere in Germany, in Europe, and the rest of the world. All righty. Well, the big question then is, what do we do about it? If we have the analysis down of what the Soviets are like and what they're doing, what do we in the United States do about it? What should our foreign policy be? How should we meet this challenge? If the Soviets are expansionist and aggressive, what policies can we seize upon to, uh, to meet that challenge? How could the U.S. push back without pushing so hard that it might lead to outright conflict or war? Now, Kennan's telegram wasn't very helpful in that regard, right? And you guys have to anal analyze, well, what policy recommendations does he make? It's, it's hard to ex extrapolate a little bit. Later on, uh, about a year later, he would publish a, an essay called The Sources of Soviet Conduct, in which he, uh, he, he published it anonymously in a magazine called Foreign Affairs in July 1947. And there, too, he, he wasn't particularly detailed about what American policy should do. But what he says is, quote, the main element of any United States policy toward the Soviet Union must be that of a long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. 
All right, so there's your answer. Containment. That's what America should pursue. Sounds great, but what did containment mean? What did it require? How should American policymakers proceed? That was the great task of U.S. policy in this period from 1946 to 1949, 1950. Figuring out an answer to that question. How to translate the intellectual concept of containing Soviet power into practical policy. Now, it's tempting to think that Truman said, all right, uh, get me containment uh, on line one. Uh, you know, get me the envelope marked containment and to see what's in it so we can put that into play. That they could just you know, turn on the switch and they'd have a policy of containment. No, there was not a plan. There was not a blueprint called containment. They couldn't just open the drawer and pull it out. So here it is, let's put that into operation. In this critical period, this three or four year period I'm talking about, American policymakers had to improvise. They had to kind of make it up as they went. They had some general guidance, general ideas governing them, but they, generally speaking, had to, uh, had to work it out as they went. I think that's a critical point. We tend to think, as we look back at the early Cold War, it's been 60 years, and it was a, a, relative, you know, a very successful story um, for the United States, anyway, that there must have been a kind of coherence to that policy early on, but there wasn't. It was remarkably piecemeal and pasted together in reaction to very specific crises and problems. What is amazing, and it's, it's, it's not, I don't think, too extreme to use that word, what's amazing is how successful and how enduring that strategy was, even though it emerged in a somewhat improvisational manner. Dean Acheson, who's one of the key architects of the policies that will follow a containment, um, he, write, he, he titled his memoirs, Present at the Creation, which is one of the best memoir titles of all time. <clears throat> And we all know what the creation was, but Atchison was talking about the creation of what? An American, an American grand strategy for victory in the Cold War. And it was created in this period, was put into practice, and it was sustained for almost 50 years. So Atchison could look back with some pride that he was present at the creation of this grand strategy. All righty, what was the grand strategy? What did it look like in practice? There's three areas where I want to suggest uh, that this new U.S. strategy for waging the Cold War um, can be, can be uh, seen uh, emerging as Americans began to feel towards a policy of containment. Taken together, they form the policy of this that this period put into place. <clears throat> as I get into the details, though, think to yourself, was the United States intensifying the Cold War? Was the United States making the Cold War worse in putting into practice these policies? Does the United States, must we as historians, essentially assign a certain amount of responsibility to the United States for generating greater Cold War tensions? Is it possible the United States did, in fact, intensify and make worse the Cold War, make it impossible to pursue a peaceful strategy of accommodation and cooperation that Roosevelt had hoped for? Are these the policies that made the Cold War last so long? Just keep that, be critical in your thinking as we're going along through these what appear to be like very successful policy initiatives. Just also be critical to think, well, what were the alternatives, the, the avenues that were missed, the alternative possibilities? So the first arena, I'm going to talk about three, three areas. First arena in which this shift away from a policy of cooperation with Russia toward a policy of confrontation, we've got to go back to Germany. That's, that's the focus of our uh, first area. 
We see in Germany, if we look at German policy, U.S.-German policy 1946 to 47, the United States threw Potsdam out the window. Now, they say they were, they were pressured to do this by the Russian misbehavior, but the fact is the United States gave up on Potsdam quite early. There was a distinctive shift in, so in, in U.S. behavior in this period, and we can see it play out in a number of very specific areas. What are some of the examples of a shift in American behavior? Away from the cooperative language of Potsdam towards what amounts to a U.S.-focused strategy for making Germany a pro-Western uh, uh, state that will eventually emerge as the state of West Germany. One example of this growing lenience in U.S. policy concern, concerns denazification. You recall that the occupying powers had agreed to rip out all vestiges of Nazi um, control, Nazi, Nazism from defeated Germany, and they were going to punish those who had waged aggressive war in Europe. Now, the occupying powers did uh, set up the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, and they tried 22 leading uh, German uh, Nazi uh, generals and ministers in uh, late 1945 into 1946. But what about the millions of Nazi Party adherents in Germany um, during the war. What should become of them? What about the talented administrators, the bureaucrats, the technicians, the elites, the educated, those who had supported the Third Reich, but who were essential to making occupied Germany function, getting the, the lights turned on? What about them? Were they all to be pushed out of their jobs? Were they all just to be sort of set aside while occupied Germany slipped into chaos? The answer that the United States gave in 1946 was no. We're not going to do that. And U.S. policy, in fact, sought to limit the scope of denazification in 1945 and 46. They granted amnesties to millions of uh, people who were um, former party members, and they handed over, in fact, responsibility for denazification to the Germans themselves. They said, you know, this is too complicated. It's too much work. Why don't the Germans handle this problem by themselves? Well, how effective do you think that was? It was rather ineffective. Why did they do this? Was this a sign the United States suddenly had become sympathetic to the objectives of the Third Reich? Of course not. Nothing to do with that. It was a question of moving forward rapidly to, to create economic and political stability inside occupied Germany and their zones. Denazification was going to get in the way of that plan. Another example of the shift in U.S. policy, the agreements at Potsdam, you spoke, remember, they'd spoken about breaking up the great industrial cartels that had been so vital to enhancing German uh, economic power in the Third Reich. They had agreed to break up these big economic concerns, but by 1946, the United States, too, begins to, do, to, to ratchet back the, uh, the pace at which uh, decartelization uh, is moving forward. They begin to slow their efforts to break up great big German industries. Why do they do that? Obviously, because uh, they want to generate economic development and growth more than they want to break up the great big German cartels. They have to choose between a policy of punishment and control that was outlined at Potsdam and a forward-looking policy that's more in line with what Kennan is talking about, which is we've got to get Germany back up on its feet because that's going to be the front on which we, we, we build our containment policy. On the political front, U.S. authorities allowed German uh, political parties to begin to form and to hold elections, local elections in January 1946 in the U.S. zone. And those local elections put Christian Democrats, that is a, a center-right wing political, political party uh, favorable to American interests, into local positions of power and influence. So Americans, again, are moving a little bit forward to create 
self-sustaining political institutions inside their zone, not focusing on the cooperative policy of Potsdam. And in May 1946, the kicker, the head of the US military administration in occupied Germany, General Lucius Clay, decides, look, it's time to stop letting the Russians have reparations, at least from the western part of Germany. So he stops the delivery of reparations from the western zones to, into Russian hands in May of 46. This is a major poke in the eye to the Russians. They say, look, this is one thing that we feel we earned. We feel we've earned reparations from Germany, and now you are stopping us gaining that access to those reparations. Clay said, look, it's just not consistent with our policy of trying to create some sort of political and economic order in Germany. We can't be ripping out its guts while we're trying to rebuild it. Doesn't make sense. But think of how early it is, May 46. The United States, a year ago, a year earlier, was busily destroying all of Germany uh, in the, the last, uh, the tail end of the Second World War. So we see that US policy by the middle of 1946 had shifted in Germany. It had shifted decisively from a policy of hard peace and control to a policy that is more constructive, more consistent with American economic interests. The United States has, by this time, very early on, rejected a policy of what amounts to servitude of Germany, the servitude of defeated Germany. Well, maybe this was a wise choice. Indeed, I think judgment of history is probably this was a wise choice. But this was not what was agreed to. And it opened the way for the Soviets to harshly criticize American behavior in Germany. They could now say, look at what you're doing there. Look at all of these fronts on which you're moving, inconsistent with our agreements. You're the bad guys, so now we're going to take our action. The Americans felt it was just the opposite. No, we are reacting to Soviet behavior. It's a chicken and egg question to a, to a large extent. But the point that I want you to, in this lecture to focus on is Americans had made their choice. They'd made a choice that they were going to move ahead with restoring order in Germany regardless of the political consequences. That's a decisive turning point. And it comes very early on in this story of the Cold War. Any questions so far? It's, you know, I think we've, we've gone through some of these details, but if there's any concerns, you have any issues at this point, feel free. We're good on occupied Germany? OK. The second area, the second key building block of American, the consolidation of American control and the building of the policy of containment, concerns what? It concerns the restoration of the European economy. So we're moving the focus out a little bit, away from uh, just on Germany, and focusing on Europe as a whole. And again, I want to stress, again, I, I feel this is important. I'm, I, 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 it, this sounds as if there was a coherent plan, but in reality, we're dealing with a somewhat piecemeal, somewhat reactive uh, set of policies, driven by growing distrust of the Soviet Union, to be sure. But there is an improvisational quality to American policy in 1946 and 47. And a good example of this almost impulsive quality to American policy comes in the spring of 1947. What happens in the spring of 1947? A critical moment when the British government, the British government announces that because of its own economic problems, its own financial difficulties, it can no longer provide political, military, and economic aid to two states that are very important geopolitically, where Britain has had traditionally some interest and some role. And those two states are Turkey and Greece. In the spring of 1947, the British say, you know, we're just too broke. We can't continue to bankroll uh, our, our, our client states 
and our, and our partners, Greece and Turkey, we don't have the money, we're going we're to have to stop our, our, our aid to these states. What's the United States to do? If the British withdraw uh, aid from these two states, this might be, a, they fear, an invitation to Soviet machinations. So in this atmosphere of growing tension and distrust in Germany and around, the, around Europe, President Truman decides the United States is going to assume the burden that Britain has laid down. The United States is going to pick it up. It's a decisive moment. British power is shrinking in Europe and in the Mediterranean. The United States power is expanding. And this moment when the United States says, we're going to pay the bill, we're going to help provide political support, military aid, economic aid to Greece and Turkey in their time of difficulty. But of course, Truman needs what in order to make this happen? He doesn't just have a checkbook. He has to go to the United States Congress. He has to say, I've got to get the Congress to pass this appropriation to, to help aid to Greece and Turkey. So what does he do? Goes to Congress in March of 1947. He asks that Congress approve $400 million in aid to Greece and Turkey together. It's not the aid that matters. It's not the money, the dollar value. It's the justification that Truman settled on when asking for this aid. He goes to Congress and he gives an astonishing speech. I've sent you the, the, the text of it. You, can, you should read it very carefully. He decides that he's going to organize American foreign policy around a very stark black and white view of foreign affairs, world affairs, in that speech. Here's what he says. We have to pay some attention to the language here, and I want you to read that document quite carefully. This is Truman in front of a joint session of the US Congress in March of 1947. At the present moment in world history, nearly every nation must choose between alternative ways of life. The choice is too often not a free one. One way of life is based upon the will of the majority and is distinguished by free institutions, representative government, free elections, guarantees of individual liberty, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from political oppression. The second way of life is based upon the will of a minority, forcibly imposed upon the majority. It relies upon terror and oppression, a controlled press and radio, fixed elections, and the suppression of personal freedoms. I believe, Truman says, that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. Truman is doing something that who would have recognized earlier in this class, very early on we talked about? This is a classic move. He's doing something that Woodrow Wilson would have recognized very, very clearly. He took a specific issue of US foreign policy and he globalized it. He maximized it. He put it into historical and ideological context. The aid itself was not important here. It was the larger stakes that Truman wanted to stress in this request for aid. And he concludes his speech with language that I think reveals a very important argument that Truman wants to make. And it tells us something about the way he thinks about how the international system works. What he says in this final paragraph, and you have the text, the seeds of totalitarian regimes are nurtured by misery and want. They spread and grow in the evil soil of poverty and strife. They reach their full growth when the hope of a people for a better life has died. 
we must keep that hope alive. The free peoples of the world, Truman says, look to us for support for maintaining their freedoms. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world, and we shall surely endanger the welfare of our own nation. Never has $400 million to two relatively small uh, eastern Mediterranean states seemed so important. We shall surely endanger the welfare of our own nation if we don't write this check to Greece and Turkey. Powerful stuff. Classic way of maximizing the argument for a specific policy interest. This document becomes known as the Truman Doctrine. And its argument is revealed in that, that, that key bit at the end there. The totalitarian regimes arise when there is misery and want. So where there is misery and want, there is likely to follow political repression. The United States must stop it. We must address the larger issue of restoring Europe's economic activity, because if we can do that, we can forestall political chaos and the seeds of totalitarian regimes. Well, the trouble is, the picture doesn't look very encouraging in late 46 and early 47 as Truman's giving this speech. It doesn't look encouraging at all. Western Europe, the advanced developed economies of Western Europe are in uh, stagnation mode. They're, they're, they've frozen up. They're not doing particularly well at all. There's a sh terrific shortages of basic foodstuffs, economic goods, clothing, food, uh, fuel, etc. Worse, two big important Western European states, France and Italy, have very large communist parties. And those communist parties are free, have been freely elected. Uh, there's a, the, anywhere between 25 and 30 percent of the votes at the ballot box is going to the communist parties in France and Italy. This is not encouraging if you're uh, Harry Truman. And those communist parties are very active and activist. They're fomenting strikes, public disor disorder, uh, protests, etc. So economic crisis plus the growth of political par uh, communist parties in France and Italy make the picture look very bad indeed. So U.S. Cold War strategy, to be successful, has to attack these sources of instability. How do they do that? The argument is that the global economy has got to be restarted, and economic activity in Europe is the key to success, long-term enduring success. That's where the direction in which Truman's cabinet is beginning to move. So the occasional check being written to Greece and Turkey, that's not going to do it. The piecemeal approach, give a little money here when there's a crisis in the Near East, give a little money here in the Mediterranean, not good enough. There's got to be a bigger, bolder plan. The United States needs a plan for economic recovery. Well, it's in that context, in the context of the tensions in Germany, the context of the Greece and Turkey issue, context of the growing economic chaos in Europe, that U.S. Secretary of State, George Marshall, goes to the University of Virginia, Oh, no, sorry. He goes to Harvard University to give a commencement speech in June of 1947. He should have come here. He goes to Harvard, gives a speech. Not a particularly breathtaking speech, quite short, in fact. He says, we have to restart the European economy, and it's time now to break the vicious circle. We can't deal with individual states by themselves and try to get them out of their hole. Europe as a whole has got to be dealt with regionally. Marshall has an interesting take on what needs to be done in Europe. He says the United States will aid Europe getting its economy back on track, but the Europeans have to act first. They have to show that they're willing to step up. They have to, to, to concert together to put together a plan for continental-wide recovery. And then the United States will come in and help underwrite, support that plan. 
So Marshall is saying, I will not uh, ask the President or the Congress to simply write out individual lump sums to individual states. No. Europe has got to come together to start talking about its own future. If it does that, the United States will be there and will support you with economic aid. This is the beginning of the European capital, European recovery program, which we call the Marshall Plan. It starts in, in June 1947 in his Harvard speech. It's just an idea at that point. But then by April of 1948, it becomes a real policy for European economic recovery. Economically, it works very simply. Here's how it works. The representatives of European states come together. They meet in July 1947 in Europe. They, they put together a detailed analysis of their economic needs, particularly their import needs, because many European states had used up their dollar reserves. They didn't have enough dollars to go out into the world market to purchase imports that they desperately needed for economic recovery. Couldn't buy agricultural fertilizer and cement and steel and, and wheat and raw materials to get their economy back up on track. They had, they had used up so much of their dollar reserves during the Second World War. So the Marshall Plan creates a fund to provide Europeans to cover what is called the dollar gap. They're going to cover the dollar gap. They're going to provide them with dollars that they need to purchase these vital imports. So far, very simple. But the great thing about the Marshall Plan is that there's a ripple effect. Because once the European states, through, through official uh, channels, have purchased these goods using Marshall Plan dollars, they then turn around and take all of these products and they sell them at home on the local market. They sell them to, their, uh, to, to, to industrial sectors of the economy, to manufacturers and so on. And they take those, that money that they earn from selling those imports, and they can reinvest those local currency dollars into what? Into rebuilding of roads, telegraphs, railways, ports, into the infrastructure that is needed. So there's a multiplier effect inside the Marshall Plan that's remarkably clever. It's not just a big envelope of money that gets airmailed into Europe. It's, a, it's, a, it's the beginning of a system, of restarting a system that is self-sustaining. In that sense, it's an investment program, and it has a ripple or multiplier effect inherent in it. That's the genius of the Marshall Plan. Marshall Plan is a milestone, not only in the economic recovery of Europe, because it starts very quickly to have an effect, to have a bite. It's also a milestone in the Cold War origins, that is to say, in the deterioration of the U.S.-Soviet relationship. Let me ask you a question. Why would the Marshall Plan, such a benevolent thing, so positive, why would the Marshall Plan be seen as controversial or provocative in any way? What is it about Marshall Aid that might have been seen as just a little bit uh, not so benevolent? Who might have reacted negatively to the United States using its economic power to restart the European economy? You want to take a, take a try? You want to say, you, well, we're going to mumble a one-word answer? Okay, go ahead. Soviet, Soviet Union, why? Soviet yeah, Soviet Union, good, yeah, Soviet why? Union. You, do you want to, you want to, go ahead. I got, um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. They wanted um, the capitalist economies to fail so that revolution could happen and the countries can turn to communism. Okay, so it doesn't sort, it doesn't suit their long-term yeah. objectives. Um, but that's not what they were going to say publicly, right? They're not going to say, oh, this is, doesn't fit with our plan of global revolution. What, do they, what, are they, what is their argument about what the U.S. is trying to do? Yeah. 
imperialistic. Imperialistic, exactly. As if the United States is using economic muscle to do what they say they never would do, which is to expand their sphere of influence and control in Europe. You see, the US is doing just what we said they would do. They're trying to take over Western Europe, indeed all of Europe. Yeah. I was just going to say that uh, they see it as uh, the United States kind of meddling in their, their sphere of influence that they earned uh, with their soldiers killed. And yeah. Uh, now, that's a great question, which we should pick up. Does the Marshall Plan reach into Eastern Europe? Does it meddle in the Soviet sphere of influence? Does it? Exactly. It gives the option. Remember, Marshall's speech and the initial invitation to come and talk about Marshall aid says everyone's invited. Everybody's invited. It's, it, it is a policy against no individual state, they say. It has no ideological objectives. So the open invitation is indeed to the Eastern European states. What do the Eastern European leaders do? Remember? A couple of them, the Czechs and others. Well, they, um, they come like RSVP for it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you there. And then yeah. Stalin basically just forced their hands that they can't show up. There's initial interest. Of course, there's terrible economic hardship and crisis. So some <coughs> Eastern European states are very tempted by this. But the Soviets say no. Stalin says, sorry, you can't do it. Precisely because he's afraid that this is going to be an economic, uh, the beginnings of an economic imperial control by, this, by the United States in, in the Soviet sphere. It's a wonderful counterfactual to consider. What if Stalin had let all the Eastern Europeans, and indeed the Soviet Union itself, join in the Marshall Plan? Wouldn't that, I mean, if, if think about it, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to ha have played that hand? So, all right, we're going to go to Paris, and we're going to talk about the economic needs of Europe, and, and I've got a dozen Eastern European states and the Soviet Union. Here's, our, here's, our, here's what we need. It would have potentially brought the Marshall Plan process to a complete halt. One of the best things that ever happened to the Marshall Plan was, the, was Stalin denying the opportunity for Eastern European states to participate. Because suddenly, the U.S. had a region of advanced, Western-oriented industrial economies that it could work with, Marshall Plan became an enormous success. Had the Soviets participated, it surely would have slowed it down in the same way that the occupation policy in Germany had come to a crushing halt. It was a strategic miscalculation, I think, historians would agree, um, on Stalin's part. So the Marshall Plan was our second uh, sign of the consolidation of a policy of containment, e using economic power, uh, economic influence, and ideas to restart the European economy. The last one, the third area that cements the fate of the United States and Western Europe together is, of course, the formation of not an economic cooperative community, but a military alliance. It's the third building block, a military alliance, a formal uh, mutual defense treaty between the United States, Canada, and uh, 10 Western European states. And this formal military alliance is to be called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO still, of course, exists today. And it was founded in April of 1949. And it marks a remarkable departure from American traditions. The United States is not, remember, does not, is not supposed to get in, involved in entangling alliances with Europeans. This is a big change for the United States. The Congress is supposed to be the one to declare war. It shouldn't be involved in fixed alliances. It might force America's hand. So it marks a decisive change. What accounts for this extraordinary change? Of course, the answer is tied to the first two areas, 
of, our, of policy that we've seen. It's precisely because of American policy changes in Germany, as well as the advent of the Marshall Plan, and the Soviet, that the Soviet Union decides, enough's enough, we're going to push back. We're going to push back against this imperialistic U.S. policy in Europe. Yeah. European countries like sort of conspire to like, after they got the money from the Marshall Plan, did they feel compelled to join that organization? It's an excellent question. Did the Europeans feel compelled? Did they conspire to join a military organization? Yeah. They pressured the United States because they wanted the assurances that they wouldn't get rolled over by like the newly ascended Germany or obviously the Soviets. Right. So what's going on in this moment as the United States policy intensifies? Who's caught in the middle? Who's caught in the middle? Why the weak, you know, uh, not very economically powerful, militarily unprepared Europeans? They can see the beginnings of increased tensions between the United States and Soviet Union. They also worry about the possibility of, a renew of renewed German power. European states are getting a little anxious about the ways things in which things are going. But at least for those leaders in Western Europe, the prospect of working with the United States to create an enduring military alliance is a very positive idea. And indeed, it is they who begin to start talking about inviting the United States to participate in an enduring military alliance. But the, what is one of the, the, the decisive clinching events that makes the Europeans so terrified that they can see things are not going to be particularly comfortable in Europe in the, in the near future? The beginnings of the Berlin blockade. It helps to really gear up and kick up the, uh, the, 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 the settlement towards the NATO agreement. You all remember, of course, uh, that the German capital, Berlin, remember where it's located. It's, it's, it's incredibly important to the whole history of the Cold War that you remember that Berlin is not itself on the border between East and West Germany, but that it's deep inside the Soviet zone. So the German capital, Berlin, is inside the Soviet zone. The four powers all had shared rights to be in Berlin, um, and they all had a presence there. But it was, since Berlin was deep inside the Soviet zone, you had to cross Soviet-held territory to get there. You had to fly over Soviet territory. You had to ride on rails and roads uh, in Soviet-held East Germany, Eastern Germany to get to Berlin. So U.S. actions in the early summer of 1948 appear very provocative to the Russians, and they push ahead. Um, uh, the, the, the Americans are pushing ahead much too quickly for Russian comfort. And on June 24, 1948, the Soviet Union decides to close off access to Berlin. Closing off access meaning closing off road and rail access into the city. The Western Berliners, those people in the American, French, and British zones of control, are suddenly captive. Captive peoples, 2.5 million Berliners, now cut off from their patrons in the West. It's as if the Russians are saying, you know what? You want to have a Marshall Plan? You want to, you want to take over your, your portion of Western Germany? Fine. We're going to have Berlin. If we've earned anything, it's Berlin. It's the capital. We're going to control it and impose our will on Berlin. And just you watch us. Watch how we, how we do it, how easy it's going to be for us. We're just going to shut the doors. You guys can't come in. A major gauntlet has been thrown down to American authorities. And it turns out to have been a colossal mistake by Stalin to have played this card. Why? Because the United States uses this as a terrific propaganda opportunity, and indeed a humanitarian opportunity. The United States and Britain undertake the creation of an air bridge through an air convoy of uh, C-47s, 
C-54s, the Dakota airplanes, and they fly into Berlin, into Western Berlin. And they deliver through an air convoy system that gets developed over the course of a year, thousands and thousands of tons of aid, coal, oil, gasoline, wheat, potatoes, clothing, everything that is required to make two and a half million Berliners survive. It's a propaganda coup of enormous proportions because it shows what? It shows American commitment to the fate of Germany and of, and of West Berliners. So in this environment with the Soviets now tensioning, ratcheting up the tension, is it any wonder that Europeans say, we really need a military organization that can cement American commitment uh, to Europe? And indeed, it is not the United States that creates and that, that, that conceives of the idea of an enduring military alliance. Princip the principal author is Ernest Bevan, the British foreign minister, who says now is the time, as, a, as almost a war panic sets in over Berlin, that we must move ahead decisively to create the institution of NATO to bring the United States permanently into, the, into, uh, into Europe. And that becomes uh, uh, a reality in April of 1949 with the birth of the NATO um, treaty organization. All right, I'm going to just, uh, we just got five minutes left, and I'm going to just move to the last uh, few points here. So I've stressed that in three areas, U.S. policy shifted decisively in 1946 to 1950. In German policy, in the advent of the Marshall Plan, and in the formation of NATO. And I've suggested that although this looks like a coherent policy at the end of this period, at the beginning, no one knew exactly how they were going to create the policy of containment. So that the strategy emerges in a somewhat improvisational manner. That said, there were key ideas guiding American choices. One of those ideas was that U.S. policy insisted on maintaining an open global economy. That was one of the main uh, concerns about Soviet behavior. Second was that U.S. policymakers believed that a free market was the key to political and social stability. A free market is the vital to the, to the success of its own, uh, its own interests and the interests of Western states. And third, that American leaders were increasingly willing to push for these aims, even if it meant confrontation with Soviet Russia. They accepted that challenge. So it seems clear to me, I mean, this is the, this is the interpretive conclusion that I would suggest. It seems clear to me that the United States did, indeed, intensify the Cold War. And indeed, by 1947, the United States had essentially embraced the Cold War as a way of organizing the international system. But, and this is a critical concluding point. The United States did not pursue this policy alone. Millions of Europeans, in fact, welcomed a continuing American commitment and presence in post-war Europe. This is not a small matter. For if the U.S., as critics then and later have said, was actually creating an empire, a form of empire, of imperial control, it was an empire in which the weaker states welcomed U.S. Uh, role, indeed, U.S. dominance. And one scholar, Geert Lundestad, has actually given this a wonderful phrase, a wonderful term, empire by invitation. Seems paradoxical, but it's quite a useful way of imagining the new relationship that is being worked out in Europe. The invitation of American power into Europe 
So if it's an empire, it's one that is cooperative and collaborative between Western European states and the United States. It's true, obviously, the U.S. settles on a policy that is a sharp departure from that cooperative approach that Roosevelt had hoped for in the war years. It's true, I think, the U.S. bears responsibility for worsening Cold War relations, uh, worsening Cold War tensions. And for making a peaceful resolution of U.S.-Soviet differences probably unlikely, if not impossible. But they did it in collaboration and cooperation with dozens of allies on the European continent. And millions of Europeans thought that this was a forward-looking, reasonable solution that they could support and, indeed, that they could welcome. So these are policy choices that are undertaken with cooperation. Europeans are very well aware of what's going on in Eastern Europe at the same time. They understand that there is an alternative form of imperial control that is not just a theoretical uh, uh, idea out there, but a real, a real possibility that it could be also be transplanted into Europe. And that's what's happening in the East. The repression and the snuffing out of independent political activity, the economic stagnation, um, the, the, the intense uh, police surveillance, um, and the subservience to Moscow. That is what those in, uh, in, in the western portion of Europe can see as happening in the east. They understand that there are choices to be made in the early Cold War, and they throw in their lot with the United States, and they do so under duress, but, but freely. And I think this is the critical point. When we talk about America pushing the Cold War agenda, it's not as if the United States and the Soviet Union behaved the same way in the creation of their spheres of influence. I think it's safe to say that they behave very differently. And in our lecture on Wednesday, we're going to talk about precisely what it is um, the Soviets are doing in their sphere of influence and how dramatically it differs from the way the United States is setting up its, its sphere in the West. OK? Good. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.